Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Jennifer Smith, co-host of this here horse race <laughs> podcast. With no other official title. I don't have an official title right now because if you'll recall, I am in the uh, intermediary one month between leaving my job at the Dorchester Reporter full-time as news editor and starting law school at Northeastern. So for now, y'all, this is my title. I mean, we've given out some awfully impressive titles here at the horse race. We've given out armadas. <laughs> we have, actually. There have been <laughs> battalion commanders. There have been, you know, supreme allied commanders. There have been, you know, supreme court justices. We're going to get you a title, and we're going to get it from the audience. Oh, no. The audience is going to assign your new title, This Jen. sounds very dangerous to um, me. You've been on the horse race more than anybody except for me. That's true. So your title should be, like, way more impressive than anybody else. I demand a duchy. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, in all seriousness, uh, Jen's going to be sticking around uh, doing freelance reporting around the Boston political world and will continue to be the co-host of the horse race. We're also going to have some exciting announcements about other people who are going to be joining the horse race. That's going to be next week. You'll definitely want to stick around for that. That's right. We're going to have some friends on here. <laughs> There's going to be a rose ceremony is what the script says I'm supposed ne- to say. Never read. Never read from the script, Steve. It's it's not safe. The night is dark and full of bachelorette references. <laughs> Um, So for this week, though, some updates on stories we've been following. The first one is, at long last, we have a state budget. It has been signed. That's right. It exists. It is law. Friend of the pod, Katie Lannon, tweeted a photo of Governor Baker signing it. So it looks like there's not any spending vetoes, but there are some line items, uh, and the legislature can override those depending on what they relate to. Uh, And also, by tomorrow, this podcast might be illegal. Yes, It's happened once before. Uh, So last year, the legislative authorization that allows horse racing and simulcasting to happen in Massachusetts expired, and horse racing was actually illegal on one of the days that the horse race podcast happened. Man, they're coming for us. So if this, you know, if you're in the state legislature and you can keep us from having to do more bootleg underground editions, (laughs) (laughs) let's make something happen here at the last minute. Gosh, we can hope so. And then also on the Boston news front is this trial that may have kind of slipped by your notice if you weren't following it on a day to day basis, which is uh, prosecutors pushing a case against uh, Kenneth Brissett and Timothy Sullivan, who were senior appointees of Mayor Martin Walsh, about whether or not they extorted the Boston Calling Music Festival into hiring union labor. So that's an ongoing uh, trial right now. And uh, top aides are getting dragged into it. There's the question of whether or not uh, Marty Walsh will be forced to come on and testify. So that's an ongoing issue. And it is really interesting and kind of unusual, too, because of the way that the mayor is being pulled into it, and his name is really being thrown around in this trial. So we'll keep an eye on that as that goes on. So another thing that was happening this week is that there was a poll going on, sort of, sort of a mysterious poll. A secret poll, A Steve. secret poll. <laughs> I love yes. secret polls. That nobody can figure out who is doing it. Stephanie Murray of Politico reported it over the weekend. She had two respondents who had responded to the poll uh, described to her sort of what had been in it. I've actually talked to two more people since then who also got the poll. Um, the poll tested Congressman Joe Kennedy against Ed Markey for Senate. Mm. That's why it was interesting. Um, and there's some things about how the poll was done that I, that I think are, are interesting. Um, first of all, one of the details that was reported was that it was done by a company called Dynata. That in and of itself doesn't really tell us anything. Thing. It's one of the largest survey research companies in the world. Um, so, that, so that doesn't necessarily tell us who did it. Like it's not strictly affiliated with either of these campaigns, so it's not clear. 
Right. Like if it was Beacon Research across the street, they're working for the Pemberton campaign. So right. then we would know, for instance. Um, and they won't tell us. You know, Dynata or any call center wouldn't tell you, you know, who sponsored the poll or anything like that. Um, but then what was actually included in the poll is also interesting. So it started off with favorables for both the current candidates, so Ed Markey, Shannon Liss Reardon, and Steve Pemberton. Then it also had Congressman Kennedy, Maura Healy, and Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. So the favorables is the thing that happens at the beginning of the poll where you just ask, do you view this candidate or that candidate favorably or unfavorably? Oftentimes you'll put in people who you kind of want to know what your voters think about or just know sort of how they stand in the electorate writ large. The idea is to figure out, do voters know who they are and how do they view that person? Well, it's interesting. It focused on Kennedy more, even though it had some other names in there. Right. So then after that, though, so that's the very beginning of the poll. After that, that was the last time any of the other candidates were brought up. The entire rest of the poll was just about Kennedy versus Markey. So that sort of very much narrows down who could possibly have been interested in this information. You know, the Pemberton campaign or the Liz Reardon campaign wouldn't have done a poll where they only asked about Joe Kennedy. Maybe they just really like Joe Kennedy. (laughs) Maybe it's a fan. Who knows? (laughs) Um, But the more likely scenario is that it's some group who's interested in a Kennedy candidacy, that it's, you know, a super PAC or some other organization that either has reason to believe that Kennedy's running or that or knows that he's interested and and, uh, is exploring it further. What did it actually find, though? Uh, well, we don't know oh, because great. we don't know the actual <laughs> results of the poll. Um, but the fact, again, that it was just Kennedy and Markey, I think, is the most interesting point. Uh, there were there was some messaging on either side also, and that messaging focused on both positives and negatives for both Kennedy and Markey. But again, not any of the other candidates. Hmm. So they're asking about things that are good about Kennedy, are bad about Kennedy, that things that Markey could say positively about himself, uh, p- potential attacks against Markey. So we also can't necessarily learn, you know, which candidate if either one sponsored that poll based on what the positives and negatives were. But it does seem like it's somebody interested in that specific matchup, which eliminates, you know, the fact that the possibility that it could be either one of the other campaigns. Yeah, well, you got to put this in in 2020 focus. The senior senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, actually endorsed both of both of these two men, uh, Kennedy and uh, Markey, for their own respective U.S. Congress campaigns. So, We'll see how that goes. And then Markey, of course, has been in Detroit doing debate spin for Warren. So we'll keep an eye on on that. But I mean, for now, I haven't heard any like public rattlings about about Kennedy. Yeah. And since then, I've checked around a little bit. And most people seem to think that Kennedy's committed to running for reelection and that Markey, you know, has his own primary challengers, but isn't expecting a Kennedy primary. Uh, so I think this would come as a surprise to most people to a lot of insiders. But, you know, there's also the the sort of general understanding that Kennedy probably does at some point have his eye on higher office. But it would be a surprise to see that right now. Interesting. Well, what else are we talking about today, Steve, instead of secret polls? Yes. uh, The perennial question, what are we actually doing here? Uh, So first, we have Alex Goldstein, who's worked with just sort of a who's who of Mapoli leaders, uh, most recently with the Ayanna Presley campaign in 2018. We asked him to come on and talk about the debate that happened last night. So This pod is being recorded on Wednesday after the first debate, before the second debate, um, and just to sort of walk us through what he saw and provide his own perspective. And then we're going to take a spin into environmental policy with Tim Cronin with the Climate Action Business Association to talk through a few different proposals coming on as far as how we should fund climate resilience, where the focus should be coming from both the governor and the legislature, and also just, hey, what's Massachusetts doing to stay green these days? So we're going to get into that in a second. Let's do it.
Last night was the first of a two-night series of Democratic debates for president, featuring our own Elizabeth Warren alongside Bernie Sanders and a crew of mostly more moderate candidates trying to grab the spotlight. Here to recap the action, we have the dean of the debate delegation, Alex Goldstein. He's been in the Mapley trenches for years, including work with the Deval Patrick and Ayanna Presley campaigns. And you might recognize him from this very podcast, talking about Presley's win. Alex, welcome back. Thanks so much. Thrilled to be here. So first, a question about the format. There was a lot of criticism on social media during last night's debate of the very short answer format. What did you think of, of how it unfolded? Well, I mean, in some ways, I think it actually uh, probably made it easier for some of the candidates to prepare for it, right? Because the more open air time and the more back and forth that's allowed between the candidates, which usually you can only do in a much smaller setting, the more nervous people like me get because your candidates might go off script, right? And like, you know, you could anticipate most of those questions. And if you knew that you were going to get those questions, you're going to get a one minute response. People could be pretty tight. And I think you saw that they were for the most part. It's like pretty obvious, especially watch the opening comments. It's like, oh my gosh, I felt like I was watching infomercials. Like people were just so had obviously drilled it in front of the mirror like a million times. And, you know, so I think it actually probably made prep easier, but it also made it way harder for anyone who wasn't a front runner to have any chance to really breaking through like they have to do something super dramatic to break through that setting well and actually that's an interesting point because i remember after the first msnbc debate the thing that we were all kind of delighted by is they didn't do the introductory Mm -hmm. statements they just immediately went i mean look you can make comments about whether or not chuck todd's questions were worth answering but they did just get right in there and start out with the questions where in this one like they burned through like 20 minutes minutes 20 minutes in yeah Although it was an awesome national anthem. I was on my feet. I was so The choral pumped. version it of it. It was so good. It tears in my eyes. Oh, man. Do we do we need that before every Democratic debate? There was just like a slight twist. In case there was the... any question about whether this was a sporting event or not, uh, we definitely got that experience. So how about the candidates themselves? Who impressed you? Who benefited from last night? I mean, I think look, Senator Warren had the best night. No question about it. I mean, she was sharp. She was super on. She had the most quotable and memorable line of the night and basically drove the news cycle afterwards. I think Bernie, you know, there's a lot of feedback out there in the Twitterverse, which I only give like 20% stock in what the actual like human beings feel about things. (laughs) Um, But I think that he was his outrage was more relatable than usual, um, I think, and that that seemed to resonate. And so it did sort of set up this dynamic where I think they they stood apart. And then especially in those moments when they kind of tag teamed against Everybody else, um, it became even even sort of more noticeable. I think the Beto and uh, Mayor Pete had decent nights, you know, probably just enough to stay relevant and that brought enough fire to it to um, to be in the fight. But and I think everybody else was nobody moved right from where they were before. And I think that's frankly, if you're Bernie or uh, or Senator Warren going into this. That's kind of your thought process is I don't need a game changing moment today. This is we're still months out. I just need to kind of maintain where I am and maybe improve a little bit. And I think they both did that. And I think everybody else probably stayed pretty stagnant. Well, that kind of brings us to what we talked about again before the first debate. Sort of Steve's position is he's like, yeah, bring on the big field. Take a look at everyone as much as you possibly can mm-hmm. in these situations. Then the idea is that the winnowing comes later. And so I was a little bit struck uh, watching watching this debate where exactly as you noted, Alex, I, I wasn't sitting there thinking like, ooh, someone really like got out of that 1% polling range with their performance today. So I do sort of have that question of, is it worth it to have all of these people polling at 1% on this stage taking up time just because like every once in a while, like Marianne Williamson 
had a really like interesting bunch of answers on a few distinct topics, notably around race and reparations and sort of the different values that we place on different communities of different incomes. Like, so she did have some kind of cogent points, but then at the same time, does that mean that we're missing the opportunity to delve more deeply into what Buttigieg thinks about something since he's clearly up there in like the top of the middle tier or something? Yeah. I mean, look, I I, I don't think, I think even if you, you know, refuse to let these folks into the debate. I mean, it would sort of, it would make whoever's left over who is allowed in, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is then the front runners. We've publicly decided who that is. It feels a little bit sort of undemocratic. Uh, like gamer-gang a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Well, because who gets to make that decision, right? Mm-hmm. And then who's going to move the threshold now that we've already established one? Um, you know, but I think, look, if you're any of these candidates, there's very little incentive, you know, Rep Swalwell being uh, sort of uh, an exception, there's very little incentive to not try to hang in there at least through one of the first two, right? Because who knows? Something crazy happens the week before. All of a sudden, you catapult. Things change really, really, really fast. And bam, okay, wow, I'm in, I'm in the mix. So you know, as long as you have 20 bucks left in your bank account and one staffer who's willing to walk you in the door, you could. there's not a huge incentive to leave at this point, right? Um, you know, they're going to get pressure from sort of the party donors and things like that. They're going to say, look, why are you wasting everybody's time? And they're going to have to be able to stomach that. But I think most of these folks are probably going to hang in there um, you know, at least through the initial like one or two primaries. Um, so what's the bigger danger, do you think, as, as the candidates are debating and sort of out there on the trail? Is it going too far left and freaking out the center? Or is mm. it not exciting the base because you're, you know, too sort of mushy and moderate and in the middle? I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I think that in some ways, I sort of feel like that's the wrong question. Because I think that Democrats, like even to the extent there's disagreements, right, where you've got, you know, I'm for Medicare for all, I'm for Medicare for all plus, I'm for no Medicare for anybody, right, that's a Republican thing. Um, The the conversation is still... I think, rooted in some basic values that the Democrats have yet to like really fully articulate, right? Mm-hmm. So we've done a really good job maybe of getting really, really mad at Donald Trump. I can talk for hours about why I think just beating the heck out of Donald Trump is a really losing strategy to winning this. And it's not because Democrats don't love to hear and Democratic voters don't love to hear it, but you have to articulate some kind of positive vision. I actually think that the Democrats from the left to the moderates are actually pretty well aligned about what we want to be talking about. We want to talk about health care. We want to talk about jobs. We want to talk about climate change. We want to talk about immigration to some extent, right? So all of that is pretty well aligned. We have different solutions for how to get there. But let's like start at the beginning. Let's articulate the basic values and say, you know what? We respectfully have different approaches to this. Whereas the sort of pitting the moderates against the, you know, the progressives, I actually think that's kind of it's a circular firing squad. Like we're going to end up inflicting more harm on ourselves. And there was a couple candidates last night who said something that really resonates. And this is what I think the Democrats really need to keep articulating. I think it was probably Senator Warren who said it. That the if you think that the only problem, and I think I said this last time I was on with you guys, um, if you think that the only problem is Donald Trump, that he just like appeared out of nowhere, like an <laughs> alien dropped him into the White House, and now if we just defeat him, we can go back to our great lives. We have to ask yourself who for which whom? is kind of Joe Biden's pitch to be to be like to be very literal about sure. it. He has actually been out there saying that Donald Trump, he believes, is an anomaly, and as soon as yeah. he's gone, I don't know, Mitch so McConnell me, suddenly starts smelling the roses. And that makes me cringe when I hear it because what you are doing is you're erasing the sort of 
decline that we've seen for the last 20, 30 years in terms of health disparities, in terms of income inequality, in terms of all these issues, and pretending they just manifested overnight because we all woke up in the middle of a nightmare, right? That's just not real life, right? And this is what we talked about in the seventh congressional race, too, which is that the that is a very sort of insider conventional wisdom approach to what's going on in this election. Donald Trump's a bad man. Make him disappear. But all of the issues we're talking about have been getting worse and worse and worse over time that predates that was during Democratic presidents. It was during Republican presidents. Everyone has responsibility for this. If the Democrats can wrap their arms around that, they will be successful. If we just want to beat the crap out of Trump and then beat the crap out of each other, we're going to lose. Well, yeah. So that's always the thing, too. And, and Steve and I have talked about this before in terms of the framing of it being sort of the left versus the moderates. And there's a lot of Democrats as well that actually identify themselves as, quote unquote, conservative. Sure, sure. Um, so sort of the, the idea of is the primary's purpose to make sure that you are pointing out and finding all of the potential uh, itty bitty little weaknesses in all of your fellow candidates mm -hmm. uh, platforms and then picking those apart now so that no one else has the opportunity to do it later? Or does that effectively strengthen the case later uh, for Republican attack ads who can pretty much pull from quotes from from this Democratic debate of Democrats calling other other Democrats plans like basically fantasy? Like yeah. what do you, how do you balance so, that? I, I don't know. My, my approach to this has always been that there's nothing wrong with a substantive critique of another candidate's policy views. Where the problem occurs is when candidates then start to say, the reason you feel this way is because you are this person, this person, this person. And you start to impugn, you sort of uh, assume people's worst possible motives. And that's where we get down this road where you can very quickly get to a point where, all right, now I'm not only am I going to attack your policy, I'm going to attack you personally and I'm going to mislead about what's actually wrong with your policy because it reinforces what I think is wrong with you as a human being, right? And I think that that's where, with the candidates I've always worked for, I think there's a, you find a pretty strong uh, sort of thread line that we say, I can draw a contrast with you on policy without attacking you and your character and your integrity as a human, unless you really deserve it, right? If you do something really terrible, then you get what's coming. Okay, so as we mentioned at the top, you, of course, worked on the recent uh, primary that Ayanna Presley won over longtime Congressman Capuano. I I'd like to hear your thoughts, if you would, about other primaries happening in Massachusetts, because it seems like there are more of them now, or at least they're announcing earlier. Are any of the current challengers that we're seeing to sitting members of Congress catching your eye at this point? Look, I think it's all really uh, interesting. I think a lot of ways is a byproduct of there being sort of a fracture in this wisdom of who's allowed to run and when they're allowed to run and who has the the right to run. And you know what? That's good. I, I, I think that the ultimately, you know, I share the sort of John Walsh uh, paradigm of grassroots politics. John Walsh was the former chairman of the party, who's Deval Patrick's campaign manager, kind of known as the godfather of the grassroots in Massachusetts. And John believes, as I do, that the more folks running in a primary, yes, there's this distraction, but by the way, none of these folks have uh, like general election challengers that are going to be viable, right? So the, the work is all going to be in the primary for them. And it makes folks accountable to their districts. And it does force them to organize at the grassroots level and makes them build a field team. And you know what? All of that can be converted into something good as long as they're not really ripping down each other's character, right? And so it goes back to the question that Jen just asked. I, I, I think the... I hope they stay within bounds of a really, you know, respectful critique of each other's policy. If they want to move each other left or they want to move each other to the center, great, have at it. Um, and I think there's some really interesting candidates in that mix. Um, you know, I haven't really sort of delved deep on all of them, but I certainly don't think it's a bad thing. I think that, uh, you know, we can handicap who's going to win and who's going to lose. But at the end of the day, I think it's going to be good for Massachusetts. Voters are going to get more opportunities to say how they feel.
So Rep Presley and Rep Moulton are both two primary challengers who actually beat uh, their sitting incumbents pretty recently. But then there are some pretty stark rules coming down from the DCCC on the national level that are kind of designed to stymie those efforts at best. This kind of came up last week when we were talking about uh, about Markey's challengers and um, the potential of uh, Rep Neal getting some challengers. So I'd just like to get your kind of take before we leave is how fast is the wind changing with regard to how people are thinking about primaries as slights versus something that is helpful? Uh, I mean, look, the, there's a certain feeling within the uh, sort of establishment of the party that it's not helpful. I think that there, that ship has already sailed, right? And look, supposedly, I think I'm probably on a blacklist for consultants. I'm probably <laughs> not allowed to like work with anybody, but that, that hasn't manifested itself. Oh no, in are we going to get way. blacklisted now? Yeah, who knows? I mean, you know, I, and. and I don't know. It's like it's one of the things I love is that Massachusetts, there's clearly nothing going on in Massachusetts politics where there's like some insider group that's going to close ranks on you. Right. Like no one's come out. And, you know, Barney Frank sometimes comes down from Maine and tells everybody how horrible they are. But like other than that, I haven't seen any kind of real blowback in Massachusetts where they're being uh, primary campaigns. Whether the folks in D.C. want to come yell at us about it, like, I don't know. It certainly hasn't impacted my life or any of the great advisors who are working on all these different campaigns. I know so many folks from the Deval Patrick diaspora, from previous campaigns who are all involved in various different primaries here, and they haven't received any sort of saber-rattling that they're going to get iced out. So I don't know. At least in Massachusetts, it's not really manifesting itself in any meaningful way. Well, that's comforting to know, Alex. And uh, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I hope uh, you'll have me back sometime soon. Of course. When it comes to the climate, many of us have had our eyes turned to the national stage these days, especially since the rollout of the Green New Deal resolution. But here on the home front, we're also dealing with the looming threats of climate change like flooding, erosion, decreased air quality, and so much more here in Massachusetts. So on here today to talk us through the green policies and proposals in the Bay State and give us his take on their prospects, we have Tim Cronin, the Policy and Partnership Manager at the Climate Action Business Association. Tim, thanks for being here on this very warm day. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a uh, surreal to be on the horse race. So. We're very impressive. <laughs> but so there's a ton going on right now at the State House. So we're going to get into that in a bit. But given your perch and our stance right in between presidential debates right now, I think Steve and I would kind of like to take your temperature on climate's place in the Democratic primary. Um, if you're hearing anyone speak well to it and uh, anyone that's striking the right chords. So the presidential debates have been really interesting, especially as it relates to climate change. Uh, I think you've been seeing that this energy around the Green New Deal has really pushed some individuals in the primary uh, to really kind of bring climate change to the forefront. And I think you combine that with some of the interesting plans that these candidates have had, and you have everything from progressive plans to plans that are considered less progressive to candidates who are considered, uh, no, not front runners, but having really good plans. Like I think of Beto O'Rourke. He's been considered by some in the climate community as having one of the best climate plans of all. This is the first time I've heard that probably because we run into, you know, different circles and I'm not yeah, I don't have yeah, access yeah. to people who have been saying that. So what are the features of his plan that people are, are, uh, are in favor of? So I think the big thing that caught people's eye is the $5 trillion that he hopes to invest in things like clean energy uh, in dealing with climate change through adaptation. And so that really caught people's eyes to begin with. Uh, the other thing is that he, I think, brought a lot of policy experts together to create the plan. But then I think you also have things like uh, our Senator Elizabeth Warren. She has a plan that deals with things beyond just climate change. You're really tapping into this idea of making uh, more things in America, increasing manufacturing domestically, 
And that's been a pretty big theme in her plan of combining things like that. Uh, I think also at the same time you see that climate change has been one of the things that a lot of activists, especially those on the progressive wing of the party, have wanted to see a debate around, and we're seeing some progress on that. So the pod bunker right now, we're in Boston, where a lot of residents have kind of a nervous eye on the sea and our coastline. So uh, let's kind of start this off by putting it in perspective. How much trouble are we in here? Yeah, yeah. So you, when you look at the, and Steve and I actually, we serve on the Scenario Planning Committee together, and when you look at the possibilities for the Boston region and Massachusetts, uh, if climate change becomes really bad or if it becomes even worse, uh, it, it's not looking great. You see the sea level rise of even one foot increases the threat to coastal communities and communities that you wouldn't even imagine having threats from sea level rise. But one foot is, is at the lower level of what we can expect. Uh, we can expect things probably moderately around three feet as well. And that exponentially increases the damage to property, the potential for, uh, you know, life-threatening events during storms. The other thing to think about, though, is that climate change impacts things beyond just coastlines. You have extreme heat like we've been seeing these last few days and weeks, uh, and you have uh, impacts on supply chains and inland flooding as well. Our polling has, has shown a pretty widespread recognition of that fact that even residents much further inland than just right here in Boston anticipate, you know, droughts, impacts to crops and farms, um, impacts, you know, such as just more severe storms throughout the year, not just sort of the increase in temperature that I think, you know, the national political conversation sometimes veers into as far as all we really need to worry about. Um, but in terms of what we here in Massachusetts can do about it, uh, there's, a, there's a few different plans that have come out of the state house. Uh, state legislature and the governor. Um, tell us a little, if you would, what are some of the key features that people should know about, about what the state legislature and the governor are putting forward? Yeah, so I think the, the question about what is on the table right now really stems around uh, this question of whether we should do adaptation or we should do mitigation. So for listeners who may not know that, uh, mitigation is really preventing emissions that are going to be released in the atmosphere in the next few years from transportation, heating, electricity, preventing those and stopping future climate change. Adaptation or resiliency is dealing with the issues that we're seeing like sea level rise. I think we're at a point where it's recognized that we need to do both. And really the debate on Beacon Hill and among policymakers in the state has really focused around how much of each to do and to what degree. So if you're talking about some of the big proposals that are uh, before Beacon Hill and lawmakers right now, you have Greenworks bill uh, and S10 or the real estate transfer tax that Governor Baker is pushing, the Greenworks bill, of course, being uh, Speaker DeLeo's, which are really firmly in that adaptation camp where we really deal with some of those issues associated with those. And then you have things like 100% renewable energy and carbon pricing bills that are firmly in the mitigation front. And I think what you're seeing is there's a lot more political will and consensus around Greenworks and S10 to some degree. And really some concern among activists that we might not get to mitigation this session, even though we need to as soon as possible. So where are some of those holdups happening? Why are the bills that are in front of us now focused more on uh, adaptation? Yeah, so I think part of the reason is that both of those bills have really, really strong champions uh, in the legislature and in Massachusetts. So S-10 or the real estate transfer tax that Governor Baker has proposed has Governor Baker as uh, the primary champion of that. Uh, it ties in a lot with some of his proposals from last session around adaptation and resilience, and he's really been a champion of that. On the other side, you have Greenworks, uh, where you know Speaker DeLeo has really kind of laid this out from the beginning uh, in February during an announcement at Greentown Labs, 
uh, that this is a priority he wants to see this session and has really shepherded it through the process. And I mean, in two months, it has gone from being introduced late to being passed by the House and everything in between. And so you really see the political will is being focused on those two bills primarily because of their sponsors. Okay, so give us a few details. Uh, I know that each one of these is, is pieces of potential legislation is very complicated, but just a bit about what the Greenworks bill would actually do. Yeah, so the Greenworks bill is about $1.3 billion uh, that would invest primarily in uh, uh, resilience and adaptation, although there is a little bit that goes towards mitigation, and you have to give it, it that. So about a billion dollars worth of it is interestingly exempt from the state bonding cap. And this is the cap that prevents, uh, you know, allows the governor to prevent spending beyond a certain amount per year. Uh, and is really, I think, intended to make sure that we don't have runaway deficits uh, or, or too much debt in, in the state. And so the state legislature, uh, under the guidance of Speaker DeLeo, uh, has really done an interesting thing in exempting about a billion of that $1.3 billion from the bond cap. And then that $1 billion goes towards uh, local communities in the form of grants for microgrids and grants for things like seawalls or putting together resiliency plans. The remaining amount of that, about 300, a little bit over 300 million, is focused on uh, things like electrification of vehicle fleets, um, increasing sustainability coordinators in local communities, and also more microgrids as well. And then thinking about uh, the governor's plan to increase the real estate transfer tax kind of for addressing causes of climate change and, and things on the local front, what is that actually supposed to be dedicated for if he gets this additional almost billion dollars from that? Yeah. So what's interesting is even Greenworks to some extent, but more so the governor's proposal uh, really kind of builds on a, on the successful uh, municipal vulnerability plan kind of program that has been created and shepherded through by Governor Baker and would essentially add about a billion dollars over 10 years uh, into that fund uh, to deal with those issues. But one thing I do think is important to note, though, is it's not necessarily the case that both are competing with each other. Uh, you see that Speaker DeLeo's bond bill uh, would provide more funding earlier and kind of deal with some of the big infrastructure problems now, whereas uh, Governor Baker's proposal would allow for more dedicated funding over time uh, with the possibility of kind of increasing or, or making sure we have those funds there. So I think sometimes those in, in the community like to think about it as a kind of competing proposals, but they're really not, uh, and they can exist together quite easily. Yeah, I think one thing that, that really comes up a lot is the broader question in my mind uh, when I'm out reporting is how many of our conversations should also be framed in the context of climate, mm. uh, something like electrifying rail or reducing vehicular commuting, uh, resilient development, coastal planning, all of these things. So how well do you think we're integrating as a legislature, as a commonwealth, the climate conversation into other policy areas? Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of progress that needs to be made on that. Uh, another interesting thing, and I know you've been talking about a lot on this podcast, is the issues are related to transportation. Uh, transportation has received a lot of attention this, this session and in the last year, and so has climate change. But the relation between the two is actually interesting. I mean, you see things like, uh, you know, President Spilka's working group on transportation, Governor Baker's uh, just brand new transportation bond bill. And both of those things have a really uh, heavy focus on climate change as well. And you can even zoom it out a little bit as well. You have the transportation climate initiative from the governors as well. And all of these things kind of overlap. So you are seeing quite a bit of cross-pollination there. But really what makes it to the finish line, pun intended, uh, <laughs> well it, done. Well done. Seems like gold star. <laughs> I feel like I've, I've reached a milestone. Uh, but really what makes it to the finish line 
is yet to be seen. And then we have the $64,000 question, which is not enough to fund anything green. Uh, Are these proposals enough, basically? What more are you pushing for? And do we in Massachusetts have a chance at our own Green New Deal? I'm thinking Ed Markey notably joined um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to push for the national Green New Deal. Do we get one? Yeah, so the issue with uh, what these proposals now is they really don't focus on on mitigation. I think you really need to have some kind of fundamental price on carbon pollution if you are going to see, you know, the realization of a Massachusetts Green New Deal or the realization of kind of those job gro- the job growth and the economic growth associated with decarbonizing that everyone talks about. These proposals, S10 and Greenworks, are good, but we really do need to be pushing forward uh, something like a price on carbon if we're going to see those outcomes. We're looking at that possibility in transportation, though, right? I mean, we're hearing a lot of leaders talking about the Transportation Climate Initiative, which essentially would be a price on carbon, import, you know, fossil fuels imported into a 10 or 12 state region. Um, and we have Reggie already for power plants. So are, are these the kinds of things you're talking about when you say a price on carbon? Yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously TCI, there's Representative Benson's bill, and Senator Barrett's bill as well. And those are the three big proposals on a price on carbon. And all of them are going to be dictated by, you know, shifting political winds and whatnot associated with that. But in the end of the day, we need to make sure we have some type of price on carbon in transportation, in heating. And I think you're exactly right. We have it already in electricity and it's working fine. It's more of figuring out which uh, proposal we're going to move forward with. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Tim Cronin with the Climate Action Business Association. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for trivia. So last week's question was, in 2013, the legislature passed a series of revenue items which were supposed to fund transportation. And by the end of the next year, two of them were gone. The question was, which two? Um, the answer, it actually, which was a tag team effort, uh, Adam Vaccaro of the Boston Globe identified the software tax and our good friend and constant respondent, um, RAF7, <laughs> identified gas tax indexing. So the software tax was almost immediate re- immediately repealed by the legislature, and then voters actually repealed uh, or undid gas tax indexing via ballot question in 2014. And congrats to Adam for the first emoji-based horse race trivia <laughs> response we ever received. Yeah. Very creative. But that brings us to the Pony Express for us this week, presidential edition. There are currently three, count them three, Massachusetts candidates for president. Not all of them have been on a debate stage, to be fair, but they are Warren, Moulton, and Weld. If you could draft any other person from Massachusetts and force them to run for president, who would you pick? So this could be a person who was born in Massachusetts, a sports figure from Massachusetts, famous, not famous, neighbor, family member, anybody at all. If you could literally force them to run for president, (laughs) who would it be? (laughs) Oh, man, there's a bunch of moms that are about to get the call right now. But you can send us your answers on social media or by email to the horse race podcast at gmail.com. We also love voice memos. We do not just want to listen to ourselves all the time. And so we will play your voice on the horse race if you send us your thoughts that way. Also, pretty normal reminder, I think, at this point is like, hey, if you like listening to us and you want other people to find us, you can rate us, review us, uh, I don't know, send carrier pigeons to everyone you've ever met and or are planning to draft for president. The easier way would just be reviews. Well, fine. Steve, you're no fun. <laughs> this is no fun. But that's all the time we have this week. I'm Jennifer Smith. Titleist Jennifer Smith. Titleist Jennifer title Smith. For Jen also. <laughs> Horse racer Jennifer Smith. And I'm Steve Cazella of the Massing Polling Group. Our producer is Libby Gormley. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>